I'm Jane Lindholm. Today we have a special presentation of the podcast Timeline from VPR Classical. Our host, James Stewart, is about to take us on a journey into musical expression and how we think about and process music. First, James will help us debunk a prevalent myth we may have heard in the past few years known as the Mozart effect. When my kids were infants, I remember being told to be sure and play music for them during the day, at nap time, while they were asleep. Oh, and the music had to be Mozart. Mozart was the key to making them smarter. Maybe you've heard of this before, the so-called Mozart effect. This idea was championed by Don Campbell in the 1997 book The Mozart Effect, tapping the power of music to heal the body, strengthen the mind, and unlock the creative spirit. This book suggested that listening to Mozart's music could actually increase the cognitive ability, spatial reasoning, the IQ, in developing brains. It caught on, sparking commercial recordings, product branding, and even the governor of Georgia proposing a budget that would have given every newborn child a CD of classical music. Is there such a thing as the Mozart effect? Well, mostly, no. Since the late 90s, there have been various studies exploring how listening to music influences developing brains. The results were rather contradictory. It turns out any music of any genre or even a story that engaged the child give them a short-term boost in their cognitive and motor functions. The Mozart effect was ranked as number six in Emory University psychologist Scott Lillenfeld's book, 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology. Let me make it clear. I'm a huge fan of introducing Mozart to kids. However, what bothers me about ideas like the Mozart effect is how it seems to be justifying music's existence based on how it affects other disciplines. It's as if art needs another reason to exist. As students, we are told that listening to music will help us do better in math and science. It worked for Einstein, so why wouldn't it work for you? Every time a school budget seeks to cut arts education, these arguments reappear. Music or art helps improve test scores. Whether they do or not is debatable, according to the latest research, and honestly, it's not the point. Art's existence doesn't need to be justified. Art has value on its own. Art is an expression of our humanity and creativity. Its value comes from itself, for its own sake, not for the sake of something else. Art has intrinsic value just as each life has intrinsic value. To quote George Mallory, we climb Mount Everest, we explore the heavens, we make music, and we participate in art because it's there. We need no other reason. This brings me back to the Mozart effect. No, passively listening to Mozart's Eine Kleine Not Music won't improve your child's test scores or give their IQ a boost. But on the other hand, Discipline study and practice of music-making, singing, playing, or composing over the course of years could benefit their life, health, and mind in countless ways. The true benefit of that work and effort isn't found in how it affects scores in reading, writing, and arithmetic. The benefit is the music itself. That's not to say that music isn't used for other purposes. We are constantly bombarded by musical manipulation. Whether you're at a restaurant, the grocery store, doctor's office, hotel lobby, or even some manufacturing facilities, there always seems to be background music playing. Why? Why is it there? Where did this practice come from? 
1910, inventor Major General George Owen Squire created a way of sending multiple signals through a single wire. In the next decade, he demonstrated how music could be delivered via electric lines directly to consumers without using airwaves. Wired Radio Incorporated became a part of the electric company, charging people for music delivered directly to their homes. This is KDKA. In the 30s, as free radio over the airwaves became more popular, Squire focused his technology on commercial clients, manufacturing, offices, and retail. He renamed his company Muzak. Muzak had its own orchestras, composers, and studios across the United States, allowing the company to create the exact sound it desired. It focused on providing a soundtrack for the workday aimed at maintaining maximum productivity from employees. Here's how it worked. The day was separated into 15-minute segments, alternating between music and silence. The research showed that workers fatigued if the music was always on. As the day progressed, the music would increase in tempo and orchestration. So you might begin the day with slow strings, but by noon, you're working in time with rousing, brassy marches. Every note was designed to motivate the worker to perform efficiently. When I think about this practice, I can't help but see the galley scene from Ben-Hur and hear the pounding of the drum dictating the tempo of the oars. Indeed, by the 1950s, there was a backlash aimed at Muzak for its manipulative programming. They were even brought to court for brainwashing employees. Muzak declared bankruptcy in 2009, but these practices of using music to influence listeners hasn't stopped. In the 2006 book Music and Manipulation by Stephen Brown and Ulrich Vogelson, there's an entire chapter that explores the use of music in business environments. For instance, a 1966 study found that music in a grocery store didn't make people buy more, they just bought everything faster. A 1992 study showed that if a store played no music at all, customers felt like time was standing still. Classical music has been found to make people buy more wine, and if you play French music, people are more likely to purchase French wine. When you call customer service, the music you hear while you're on hold has been designed so you can wait longer. Every single aspect of this background music, from the tempo of songs in a gym to the soothing sounds in a doctor's office, has been designed to influence your behavior, mood, and emotion. This isn't necessarily good or bad, it just is. I think the important part is that we are aware of the musical manipulation happening around us. This manipulation doesn't just happen in the nursery or in grocery stores, lobbies, or waiting rooms. Music has become an important tool in our political landscape as well. From TV and internet advertisements to playlists at political rallies, politicians know how to use music to influence voters. James tells us how songs have played a role in elections since the very beginning of our democracy. In 1800, President John Adams was up for re-election. His supporters wrote this song, Adams and Liberty, like a 19th century viral marketing campaign. The lyrics were written to a familiar tune, to Anacreon in Heaven. Do you recognize it? It's the same tune that was used a few years later to set the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner. In 1840, presidential hopeful William Henry Harrison's campaign produced booklets called Songsters to be used at their political rallies. 
These were like hymnals using familiar melodies, new lyrics, and even three to four part harmony. John Philip Sousa wrote the White Plume March in support of the 1884 candidate James Blaine. Even Broadway legend Irving Berlin tweaked the song I Like Ike in support of General Dwight Eisenhower. I like Ike, I'll shout it over a mic, or a phone, or from the highest... The media landscape today is quite different than it was in 1952 or 1800. There is an inferno raging in Washington. Every election cycle, we're bombarded by advertising from candidates on television, radio, and online. They have 30 to 60 seconds to make their case, whatever that might be. The producers of these advertisements know that the human brain reacts to music in just a few thousandths of a second. What better tool could you use to create an instant mood? It's incredibly painful. Over 97% of political ads use music. That's according to the Wesleyan Media Project, which analyzed over 700 ads that aired during the 2012 election cycle. They categorize the music from each ad as either ominous, uplifting, or sorrowful. It's important that the music match the tone of the ad. A quick Google search will show you that there are multiple outlets, companies, and composers writing music specifically for these political ads. You can purchase the tracks royalty-free at a competitive rate. They're often cataloged with titles like Stain the Course, We Can Do It Together, Forgotten Children, or Can't Be Trusted. There are hundreds of options. It makes it easier for the producers to choose what music to accompany their message. Every campaign, regardless of political party, uses music to reinforce or underscore their message. Whether that music is background for an advertisement, a playlist for a political rally, or a live performance given in support of the candidate. I recently stumbled across the website Tracks on the Trail. This blog employed a team of political scientists, musicologists, sociologists, communication specialists, and the like to explore the use of music and sound on the campaign trail in 2016 from every angle. On that website, you'll find essays about Hillary Clinton's girl power anthems and the reception of the musical Hamilton in the age of Donald Trump. You'll also find a feature called Trail Tracks, a database of over 8,000 musical entries cataloged by artist, candidate, genre, and type. You can trace the various musical tactics used by the candidates over the course of a campaign. There's nothing wrong with using music as a political tool. However, since we respond so quickly and viscerally to musical stimulus, it's important to pay attention to the message being presented, not just the sounds that accompany it. Because the reality is, sound has power. Our response to music is almost immediate, and the sounds we hear resonate and captivate our brains in ways we can control and in ways we can't. Conductor, when you receive a fare, punch in the presence of the passenger. A blue trip slip for an eight-cent fare. A buff trip slip for a six-cent fare. A pink trip slip for a three-cent fare. Punch in the presence of the passenger. Those jingling rhymes come from Mark Twain's short story, A Literary Nightmare, published in 1876. Twain warned the reader to avoid this hypnotic verse as you would a pestilence, else the rhymes will never leave and you'll be driven insane. Punch in the presence of the passenger. Have you ever had a song that you just couldn't get out of your head? This is the song that doesn't end. You're not alone. 98% of people have reportedly experienced this phenomenon. Scientists call it involuntary musical imagery, but the more catchy title is Earworm. 
I was quite surprised to discover that there's been a lot of research into this stuck song syndrome. The British Journal of Psychology reported that most earworms are short sections of larger works, 15 to 20 seconds at the most. Dr. Earworm, James Collars at the University of Cincinnati, noted that the vast majority of these catchy tunes are accompanied by lyrics, vocal songs. Dr. Collars also noted that though women and men experience earworms equally, women reported that they last longer and annoy them more. Researcher Vicki Williamson at Goldsmiths University of London found that while most earworms are the result of musical stimuli, hearing the song, sometimes they're triggered by something else, perhaps a word, an emotion, or a memory. So what can you do when you're plagued by an incessant earworm? Scientists at Western Washington University say the answer might be as simple as solving a puzzle, perhaps a Sudoku. Though the scientists found that five-letter anagrams gave the best results, it has to be just enough challenge to push the melody out of your short-term or working memory. A 2015 research project from the University of Reading suggested that chewing gum could be enough to stop the stuck song. Still, other research maintains that since an earworm is usually just a portion of a larger work, listening to the entire song or piece might solve the issue. Why? Why do earworms exist? What makes some music stick while other music doesn't? To be honest, we don't know, but science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke had a theory. In the 1957 short story, The Ultimate Melody, Clarke tells the tale of doomed scientist Gilbert Lister. In the story, Gilbert builds a composing computer called Ludwig, programmed to find the perfect melody, music that rings in exact harmony with the wave patterns of the human mind. Gilbert believed that all earworms stick because they resonate with human thought in brainwaves. The computer, Ludwig, finds this ultimate tune, and the result of listening to this music shuts down Gilbert Lister's brain completely. He's found in a catatonic state, unable to function because his mind has been invaded by this perfect song. The narrator questions whether Gilbert should be pitied or envied. Oh, Gilbert, I've been there. I'm Jane Lindholm. This is Music and the Mind, a special presentation of the podcast Timeline from VPR Classical. Timeline host James Stewart enlisted the help of several staffers here at VPR to explore auditory illusions and sonic experiments. See how your brain can fill in gaps and can sometimes be fooled into hearing things that aren't there at all. We are wired to respond to sound in a thousandth of a second. With that kind of visceral, automatic response, we sometimes get it wrong. I've been looking at the research of perceptual and cognitive psychologist Diana Deutsch. She has spent her career exploring and assembling audio illusions and curiosities. We'll look at a few of them together and ask, can you trust your ears? I posed that question to a few of my colleagues at VPR. They volunteered to experience a few audio experiments with me. Why don't you give your names? My name is Brendan Kinney. Joe Tomecki. And I'm Leslie Blount. Okay, guys. So this first one is one that uh, is kind of an internet meme. It's mm. gone around a lot. You remember? Okay. The, do you remember the uh, dress? Is it blue? Is it right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. What name do you hear? Laurel. Ah. Laurel. I heard Laurel too. <laughs> Laurel. Do you hear Laurel? I hear Laurel. Some people hear Laurel, and some hear Yanni. What about you? Listen to that audio sample again. Laurel. Laurel. 
Unlike the famous image of the dress, which has to be one color or the other, this audio sample actually does contain both names simultaneously. Laurel. Yanni and Laurel are separated by high and low frequencies. Laurel. There's almost a 50-50 split between those that hear Laurel and those that hear Yanni. It all depends on what frequencies you are personally tuned into. Laurel. I find that I always hear Laurel unless I slow down the audio 25%. Then Yanni comes into focus. This next experiment is best experienced with headphones. I'll play you a simple melody in one ear and then the other. Listen again. Listen to the way the melodies bounce around a little bit. In one ear, in the other. Now I'll play both audio samples at the same time in both ears. Did you hear what happens? It's the same exact bouncing melodies, but when experienced together, they produce a simple scale moving in contrary motion. We call this the Deutsch scale illusion. Our mind is rigged to perceive patterns, and it will automatically place similar notes together in a line. That's the power of this illusion, to make you hear a scale when neither audio sample is playing it. Let's listen to one more audio experiment called the Shepard Risset Glissando. The challenge is to follow a single pitch all the way down to the bottom. You'll see what I mean. So obviously I hear notes descending, and then at some point it seems like I just lose track of where it is and my ear sort of resets up to some higher note again and just like locks on a higher note. I was hearing it, like my mind wanted to make me think, and you said to Sando, that the note was going down, but as I listened to it, it it's just layered, bottom. it never went down, right? It just stayed. And the longer <clears throat> I heard it, I was like, wait a minute. We were just staying right where we were. Right. It just had this depth to it. The Shepard Risset Glissando is a bit like an old-fashioned barbershop pole spinning in place, creating the illusion of infinite motion. The reality is we have a limited frequency range that our ears can perceive, and as the low notes go down below our hearing, new notes replace them from above. Our mind perceives the loop. That's a couple of examples of tricks, asking if we can truly trust our ears. But now, let's look at some of the amazing things our ears can do. This next experiment is called a constant-spectrum melody. What do you hear? Well, you had this overriding, like, wah sound, you know, and then it was almost like an organ or almost like a, a horn instrument kind of doing some kind of notes in the background. Can you sing the notes? Do 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 That's all I hear. You hear it, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and then it bow, and then it sort of resets and goes again. So you so you 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 just sang a melody. Yes. How about you? Did you hear a melody? Many people do. That sound, the constant spectrum melody, plays with timbre. There's just one pitch, one note, but the overtones, the harmonics on top of that note, are being filtered and manipulated at a constant rate. The result of this manipulation allows you to experience a melody inside a single pitch. Now let's try to hear a pitch that isn't there at all. I'll warn you, this doesn't work for everyone, but we'll give it a try. This experiment is called the missing fundamental. You'll hear the bass pitch C, the root, and then we'll add harmonics on top. 
listen as we remove the lower frequencies. You might still hear, or at least feel, the root pitch, the C, even though it's actually not playing anymore. Weird. <laughs> I think the physical feeling was as much of anything. And that's the reality. It's a physical feeling. It's a physical realization that if these frequencies exist, then that one has to. But it's not really there. It's a phantom. Right. It's a phantom feeling that if these amounts of frequencies are there, then that must be the thing that's causing them. Yeah. Yeah, that was an intense sound. Here's one more thing your ear can do and does all the time. Listen to this short piece of audio, but be warned it's a little high and loud to make this work. Do you hear the tone rise smoothly despite the little buzzing interruptions? Listen again. Most people hear the tone continue without stopping, just with some added noise that their brain discards. Actually, those interruptions stop the sound. There's really three climbing pitches, but your brain holds the tone together to perceive it as one. We call this the illusionary continuity of notes. By the way, your brain is doing this while you listen to me speak right now. The audio you're hearing, my voice, whether through a podcast or on air, is digitized. This means it's not a constant wave like someone standing and speaking next to you. You're listening to compressed samples being delivered to your ear at an incredibly fast rate, and your brain is filling in the gaps while I speak. That's the power of our sense of hearing, and the broadcast and recording industry is banking on this amazing ability. Then this one is one I might do all by itself. Um, I want you to listen to this noise and tell me what you hear. Why don't you do the same? We'll listen to this audio together. Focus for just a moment. Listen carefully. What did you hear? It almost sounds like a little tick, 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 tick sort of noise that I'm hearing in the background on top of the hiss. Hmm. Well, first I heard rain. And then I heard static, and then I heard wind. <laughs> That's so funny, because I went static, rain, and then I could hear the wind in it. But I could also hear, like, kind of a heartbeat in it, a pulse oh. in it just a little bit, too. What did you hear in that sound? The truth is, the audio I played is simply computer-generated white noise. It's empty. There's nothing there but static. However, many people listening to such audio will experience something. Rain, wind, a heartbeat, some ticking, or perhaps even a voice speaking in the noise. We call this phenomenon periodolia. It's the power of your brain to recognize patterns and apply known shapes to unknown sounds and images. Like seeing a face in a wall outlet, a shape in the clouds, Lincoln's face in a burnt piece of toast, or a heartbeat in the midst of empty static. It's like your brain is trying to relate it to something that's familiar. And it's also about expectations. Like, right. I didn't tell you whether there would be or anything or, mm -hmm. or not. You just, I, exactly. You just expected there to be, so you were sitting there, and so what did you expect to hear? And yeah. if you had asked this first, we might have just said static or rain. Yeah. Your brain is hardwired to recognize patterns. Our senses are constantly in use, protecting us and helping us to understand our surroundings. Perhaps that's the main reason we experience periodolia, so we can sense danger and react as soon as possible. For instance, our minds are super fast at recognizing faces. We've clocked the human brain at 150 milliseconds for facial recognition. Usually we're right, except when we're not. We do the same thing with sounds as well. Our minds will try to find meaning even when it's not expressly present. 
Psychologist Diana Deutsch has made an extensive study of the way we perceive and conceptualize sound. Many of the experiments we've looked at over the past few episodes have come from her research. In 1995, Deutsch created a process for exploring phantom words. In this audio sample, there is one phrase repeated, but the stereo channels are offset in time. This creates a disorienting illusion, and the mind starts to construct the sounds and syllables into different words. I hear no way as clear as day, but others have reported hearing window, welcome, love me, rainbow, mango, reno, and many others. What did you hear in those audio illusions? It's amazing to think about the incredible power of our minds and ears. Coming up, we'll look at the practical ways in which the power of music has been used to soothe, focus, and heal, as host James Stewart explores the history and practice of music therapy. I'm Jane Lindholm, and you're listening to Music and the Mind. In 2016, the University College of London conducted a scientific study of mental health and music. They wanted to see the effect group drumming could have on depression, anxiety, and the immune system. There were two groups of adults, one that participated in 90-minute weekly drumming sessions for 10 weeks, and the other was a control group that didn't participate at all. After 10 weeks, the participants reported an almost 40% drop in depression, a significant improvement in their social resilience and anxiety, as well as a marked, measurable increase in their immunity profile when compared to the control group. In other words, banging on a drum together made these people feel happier, connect with others, and improve their ability to fight off infection and sickness. The researchers checked back with the participants after three months and discovered that these benefits were maintained. The British Journal of Psychology published an article in 2015 making a case for community choirs created specifically for individuals over the age of 60. They observed five different choirs over the course of six months. Like the drumming study, they noted marked improvements in mental health and the quality of life among the over 250 individuals that participated. The study found that singing together is, and I quote, a useful intervention to maintain and enhance the mental health of older people. Not only that, but it's actually less expensive and more effective than other programs with a similar mission. Actively participating in music making, actually making the sounds either by yourself or with a group, has been found to boost executive brain function, strengthen speech processing, improve memory, and promote empathy. Making music can slow the process of dementia and Alzheimer's, increase the immune response, and improve basic motor functions. So don't just consume music, make it. Pick up an instrument, sing a song, join a choir, dust off the piano in the parlor, participate, and get involved. Your heart, your brain, your body, your family, and your friends will thank you for it. All of these studies and scientific research into the benefits of music are demonstrating that there is clear therapeutic power in sharing organized sound together. Let's explore this power deeper and look into the history and practice of the growing medical field music therapy. It's become a well-established health profession dedicated to the use of musical intervention to address the wellness of individuals. We'll start with the story of tragedy and personal triumph. 
Um, I heard I heard about 15 to 20 gunshots. On January 8, 2011, outside a Safeway grocery store near Tucson, Arizona, Congresswoman Gabby Gifford survived an assassination attempt after she was attacked and shot in the head. Following many surgeries and a medically induced coma, Giffords began to recover. But her doctors discovered that Gabby suffered from aphasia, the loss of the ability to understand or express speech due to brain damage. Only eight months later, in August, Giffords returned to Congress for a vote on the House floor. We all want to welcome back our wonderful colleague, Congresswoman Giffords, here. And with that, I have Able to walk, talk, read, and write. How did she recover so quickly from such a horrific injury? Giffords credits her music therapist, Dr. Megan Moreau, a certified brain injury specialist at TIRR Memorial Herman Rehabilitation Hospital in Houston. Dr. Moreau describes her therapeutic technique using the metaphor of a highway detour. The brain is made up of many different connections, like roads or pathways for information to travel. An injury like Giffords can interrupt the flow and cut off one part of the brain from another. Dr. Moreau describes you aren't able to go forward on that pathway anymore, but you can exit and go around and get to where you need to go. By connecting language and music, words and melody together, Dr. Moreau was able to help Gabby Giffords rewire her brain and build new connections around her injury, a cognitive detour. This is how an adult can relearn how to speak. Dr. Oliver Sacks, the author of Musicophilia, declared, nothing activates the brain so extensively as music. We've known for centuries that even individuals who are called mute could still sing. In 1871, Victorian clinician Dr. John Hewlings Jackson wrote an article called Singing by Speechless Children. But it's only been in the past couple of decades we've explored why the mute can sing and how music might actually heal. Many are still skeptical about music therapy, and only a few health insurance companies cover these services. Hopefully that will change as evidence mounts, showing just how effective these treatments can be. A long, long time ago, Dr. Megan Moreau recounts her first sessions with Congresswoman Giffords, sharing how they discovered some of Gabby's favorite songs and invited her to listen, hum along, and eventually sing American Pie and Brown Eyed Girl. Dr. Moreau told ABC News, When I first saw Gabby and I first sang the song with her, I knew that things were going to get better. German philosopher Immanuel Kant called music the quickening art. Oliver Sacks uses this quote often when explaining how music can jumpstart the human brain. Music employs so many different parts of the mind at once. It can trigger responses that may have seemed dormant or even lost forever. Sometimes the effect of music on the mind can even appear miraculous. I've seen it firsthand. In 2012, filmmaker Michael Rosado Bennett created Alive Inside, a documentary about the power of music to unlock the human mind. The film follows social worker Dan Cohen, who put together individualized iPods for residents at an East Coast nursing home. The most memorable moment in the film for me features a dementia patient, an elderly gentleman named Henry. Henry is one of the five million people in America with dementia. The segment begins with Henry slumped over in a wheelchair, almost completely unresponsive. The nurse then places headphones over his ears and presses play on his iPod. The response is dynamic, to say the least. 
and immediately he, he lights up. Henry's head rises, his eyes open wide, and he begins to sing. His body starts to move. In short, he wakes up. <laughs> Even after the headphones are taken away, Henry is awake, alert, and begins to have a beautiful conversation about what music means to him. Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. The first time I saw this, I have to admit, I cried as Henry sang Cab Calloway's version of I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll be home there for Christmas. You can We've talked a lot about how the brain processes music and how music touches so many different parts of our mind. We've explored the physical, emotional, and social benefits of music. As one listener to Timeline wrote in, it can all sound quite academic. Until you see the footage of Henry singing, or you witness someone you love coming back to the now through the power of music. My grandmother Jessie was my first piano teacher. She was a wonderful organist and pianist, having played and instructed on those instruments all of her life. During her last year, she lost her sight and with it an awareness of the present. The last time I saw her was at a nursing home. She wasn't really there with me. She was talking about piloting a new form of experimental aircraft and, well, I wasn't her grandson at that moment. She didn't remember me. However, there was a keyboard in her room. The nurses knew that she loved to play. They guided her to the keys, and she began to play her favorite gospel song, Mansion Over the Hilltop, Blind. We sang, and for a moment, she remembered. Here's where I tell you how important it is that we share in music at every age, every season of life. Here's where I make a case for art's existence and why it must be preserved and supported. But these are just words, words that are easily forgotten or ignored. However, the day will come when music will be there for you or someone you love. A song or a melody from the past will rise like a balm over a wound, like a hand in the darkness leading back to the light. In that moment of quickening, these words won't matter, just the music. Listen and remember. Remember how music has touched you since the beginning. Music not only reaches into our memories, it also quickens us in the now. Simply type study music into a Google search and you'll get about 3 billion results. From videos and tracks of original pieces that use alpha waves to help you focus, to long playlists of classical music for study and concentration. There are entire genres and branches of the music industry devoted to providing music as a backdrop to other activities. Do they work? Yes, yes they do. As Rebecca West of the Music Institute of Chicago stated, Rhythm, melody, and tempo are tools used to target non-musical behaviors to catapult change throughout the body. A change in rhythm can trigger a reaction in the brain. Music's ability to aid in cognitive focus is inspiring new, exciting research in neurology and music therapy, especially for those with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Kirsten Hutchinson, a music therapist at Music Works Northeast, a nonprofit community music school outside of Seattle, writes Music exists in time with a clear beginning, middle, and end. That structure helps a child with ADHD plan, anticipate, and react. One in ten children in the United States is diagnosed with ADHD. That's over six million kids. With a number that big, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, so let me tell you a story about just one. Brenna was born in 1982. 
Complications during birth had caused damage to the prefrontal cortex of Brandon's brain. As a result, he was a fussy baby with delayed language skills and severe anxiety. It became clear that Brandon had pronounced learning disabilities, mostly around audio processing. He was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of six, and it was around this age that teachers and educators declared that Brandon would probably never graduate from high school to say nothing about college. However, Brandon's mother refused to give up on his education. She continued to research his condition, went to other doctors, and tried many different strategies, the most successful of which was music, especially learning a musical instrument. Brandon started taking piano lessons at five and quickly thrived in that environment. His mother created musical games for almost every subject at school, from spelling to mathematics. Together, they composed songs and jingles to remember facts and figures. Over time, Brandon's ability to focus and concentrate improved. It was a lot of hard work, but he finished high school, went to college, and graduated with a degree in philosophy and film. Brandon's story is not unusual or surprising. Traditional interventions for children with ADHD include therapy, coaching, support groups, and, yes, medication. But recent scientific studies are showing that music can be used to treat the symptoms of inattention in ADHD. William E. Pelham Jr., director of the FIU Center for Children and Families, conducted a study exploring music and video as a distractor for boys with ADHD against medication. He declared, we found listening to music help kids with ADHD complete their work. Actually, for this subgroup, the effect of music on them was nearly as effective as medication. Not only is this true in the treatment of ADHD, but also in the realm of pain management. There's nothing new about this. The ancient king of Israel, Saul, was said to have suffered from intense insomnia and a troubled mind. He employed a young musician named David to play the lyre and help him find peace, rest, and sleep. The story of David and Saul demonstrates that we've always understood the healing qualities of music, its ability to alleviate pain and ease the mind. However, it's only been in the past few decades that we've truly begun to study music's true palliative power. During World War I, many of those who fought seemed to suffer from a mysterious post-combat illness. The soldiers reported amnesia, dizziness, tremors, headaches, tinnitus, and attention deficits. Basically, all the signs of a brain injury without any of the physical markers. Physicians used the term shell shock to describe what these patients had in common. There was no physical treatment for what was considered to be a psychological issue, so enter the singer-actor Paula Lind Ayers. In 1919, she was hailed the girl who sings away shell shock. I'm always chasing rain. Paula was a YMCA entertainer, a type of early USO, that performed in hospitals and convalescent camps overseas during the war. She stumbled into a career as a song physician, singing to shell-shocked soldiers and easing their tension. She would begin with simple lullabies and gentle songs and then gradually transition to something more rousing and spirited. In an interview, she stated, I watch for signs of improvement, and when it seems wise, go on to other songs. And soon, most of the boys are singing with me. Paula Ayers is perfectly describing the methodology used in modern musical therapy. Professor Suzanne Hansler, the Berkeley College of Music, is a board-certified music therapist. 
Suzanne writes that music therapy protocol is designed to perform several functions. To distract the listener from pain or anxiety and comfort them with familiar music while providing a basis for rhythmic breathing in the systematic release of body tension. The goal is to have the patient rely less on medication and to improve respiration, blood pressure, and heart rate through musical practice. How is this possible? How and why does it work? In 1965, Ronald Melsack and Patrick Wall published an article called Pain Mechanisms, a New Theory, in Science Magazine. They suggested the gate control theory of pain. Now, it's evident that how we feel, our expectations, our emotions, somehow affect our perception of pain. If we expect something to hurt, it usually does. If we're upset, it hurts more. If we're calm, it hurts less. This theory suggests that there is a cognitive gate that can either allow signals through to the brain or can block them. Helping a patient relax and find a place of calm, distracting them with enjoyable sounds and music, can override the pain signals and provide relief. We've looked at the power of music in our daily lives. We've explored the ways our ears and minds interact as we listen to sound. And we've discussed some of the practical ways in which music is currently being used to treat pain, dementia, and ADHD. We'll finish out this show by talking to a professional in the field of music therapy. So I'm Maggie Connors, and I'm a board-certified music therapist. I had always been really involved in music. I played in BYO. I'm a a bassoonist as my primary instrument. I loved working with people and working with kids, and I loved watching how people interact and some of that psychology, sociology aspects. And music therapy was this really interesting Venn diagram where everything was in that little center in the middle. I asked Maggie to give us a brief definition of what music therapy is in her own words. She says that her job is to use music clinically to achieve clinical goals. So we're going to work in a lot of different domain areas. It might look like we're teaching music or we're teaching an instrument. And we can use music as an external stimuli to help somebody connect with what's going on in their body and also move them into a different psychological, physiological state. You might hear this talked about in music therapy as the ISO principle. If I have a a student or a patient that's really angry, really upset, um, really excited, I'm going to start whatever we're doing, whether it's instrument playing or singing or dancing, we're going to start wherever they are. If they're really excited, if they're really mad, it's going to be, we're going to match their kind of level, and then I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna change it. So I'm going to maybe, maybe I'll try like slowing down a little bit on the guitar, like are they going to follow me? And if they don't, maybe I'll go back to playing whatever the fast, loud, crazy music um, with the, with the goal and the hope and the training to move them from wherever they are to where, where we want to be. Emphasis on the patient and their clinical needs is paramount to the music therapist. Maggie shared that she knows the treatment is working when she hears the patient say, This is the best I've felt all day, or this totally turned my day around. Like, I was having a horrible day, and now I, felt, I feel like I, I just turned a corner. Or parents that'll say, like, it... It's so great to see my, my kid being a kid or to, you know, see what they're capable of and to see them kind of at their, their highest potential. I've been reading a great deal about music therapy lately, and I've noticed two troubling trends. First, the research is grossly underfunded and incomplete. And second, 
There seems to be a presupposed idea that becoming a music therapist is easy and doesn't require much study or preparation. You know, this is where we get into the the reality that music therapy is, it's been around for a long time, you know, back in, you know, back into World War One, World War Two, but it's still young and it's still a growing profession. Many people don't know the possibility of like what, it, what could something look like with a trained music therapist. We're working with populations that have a lot of different needs and different ways of communicating or even, you know, vulnerable populations where, you know, you can, you ha- if you open a box, you have to be able to close it. A lot of the times I think of like sensory regulation. And if you don't have any idea how to work with somebody and don't have the training to work with somebody that is, can go into sensory overload or, you know, hypersensitive or hyposensitive, um, you can actually cause harm. You want a trained music therapist. You want a board-certified music therapist. We have our standards of practice and our code of ethics, and we have all this training and continuing education in order to address these needs. Maggie makes it clear that there is therapeutic power in music and music therapy, and with this power comes a responsibility to use it well and carefully. I say all of this because there is an undercurrent in our culture, in philosophy and education, to see music as unimportant. Over and over again, music's role in society has been questioned and its importance diminished. Some even go so far as to call music auditory cheesecake, meaning that it's trivial, fluff, and of no nutritional value. However, music does have a role to play in our society. As we've seen throughout this program, music has the power to influence, unite, and heal. How individuals use, create, and practice music tells us a great deal about the society they inhabit. As Confucius stated many years ago, and this is an English paraphrase, if one should desire to know whether a kingdom is well governed, if its morals are good or bad, the quality of its music will furnish the answer. We've been operating under the assumption that music has no survival or evolutionary benefit, yet our biology is telling a different story. We might not understand all the ways that musical expression has shaped us, but evidence is mounting that we are musical creatures, seeking organized sound much in the same way that we seek out other physical pleasures and experiences. Our brains are wired for music. That was VPR Classical host James Stewart with Music and the Mind, a special presentation of the podcast Timeline. If you would like to learn more, check out the podcast. There are more than 160 episodes exploring music, culture, and history. You can find them all at vpr.org timeline or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Timeline from VPR Classical. I'm Jane Lindholm. Thanks for listening.